Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I'm going to continue some more of my Calvinist musings. It's going to be kind of a hit list of various uh, arguments, positions, evidences, and so forth for um, Reformed understanding of soteriology. Uh, with that, if you like this content or appreciate the other content that we put here out here on the Freed Thinker podcast, please consider becoming a sponsor. You can follow us on uh, by visiting the blog, freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Head to the link at the top that is the Become a Sponsor link, or you can find us on Patreon and sponsor us there. We really, really appreciate it and always greatly appreciate any iTunes uh, reviews that you can provide for us there as well. Well, with that, let's dive right into this episode and think about Reformed soteriology, Calvinism, and some different ways that we can defend it, discuss it, uh, and so on and so forth. Thanks for joining. Let's dive right in. My first musing that I want to give in this episode um, is basically a warranted case for biblical compatibilism. Now, warrant um, is a is a is an interesting concept within epistemology. Here, I'm not saying that I'm giving a fully evidenced case. I'm not responding to every single rejoinder. I'm not giving every single argument. I'm not going through every single piece of evidence. What I'm going to basically say is that. Within the Bible, we have warrant for being compatibilists, even if we can't answer every question, although I think we answer a lot more questions than uh, incompatibilistic libertarians give us credit for. Um, but I think what we can say, and, and I'll go through this, is that in the Bible, we see both determinism and freedom. And so if we see both of those in Scripture, then I think we're warranted to affirm compatibilism. So we're going to go through a little bit of that. Now, libertarian incompatibilists often say that the Bible demonstrates that their position is the biblical position. I simply disagree for one very simple reason. Libertarian incompatibilism and compatibilism, as well as a handful of other views, all affirm substantive concepts of human choice and moral responsibility associated with those choices. 
Now, the libertarian incompatibilist listening may want to argue that compatibilism is not successful in reconciling any meaningful concept of determinism with any meaningful concept of, respons of responsibility making freedom of choice. But that really doesn't help them here. Why? Well, because compatibilists disagree with them and think that it is the libertarian incompatibilism which fails. Now, we, and we could just have this pointing match. We can both say, well, I don't think your case is true, and I don't think your case is true, and so on and so forth. But here, we're not, again, I'm not arguing that compatibilism is necessarily true, and we'll see uh, how this works out when we go through it. Um, we'll see, but we'll see why the arguments that, that you know, this, this certain biblical passage, it, it demonstrates libertarianism and not compatibilism. We'll see why that claim cannot be uh, used to defend libertarian freedom. Now, libertarian incompatibilists will go to some Bible verses that present a real choice where someone is actually held morally responsible, such as Joshua 24, 15, where, where Joshua says, quote, choose this day whom you will serve. And the, and the libertarian will say, see, choice, freedom. Therefore, the Bible affirms libertarianism. The problem is that compatibilism also affirms substantive choosing and the responsibility that comes with it. So we don't have a problem with that verse. Again, I'm not here defending the philosophy of compatibilism. The libertarian might come back and say, okay, well, you, you say that you affirm substantive choosing, but because of A, B, and C philosophical reasons, uh, your, your argument fails. That's fine. Here, I'm simply saying what, uh, whether or not a verse demonstrates the truth of libertarianism and therefore the falsity of compatibilism, right? So we don't, as a compatibilist, we don't have a problem with verses like Joshua 24, 15. But the libertarian incompatibilist asserts, ah, but your view fails to establish freedom and responsibility, so it can't account for these verses, Yet notice what this argument actually is. It's a begging of the question. It begs the question because it says, assuming that compatibilism is false, this verse demonstrates libertarianism. Right? So when the compatibilist says, well, we have no problem with that verse, and they say, oh, but your, your view can't, we have, you know, when we say we have no problem with that, with that view because we affirm choice, and they say, oh, well, your, your view can't account for, for choice, therefore your view is false, right? They're already coming into this passage saying, we assume compatibilism is false, therefore, since that can't be an option, this verse has to demonstrate libertarianism. But remember, they're trying to use this verse as a supposed support that's presented as evidence for the case that libertarian incompatibilism is true. As such, the libertarian cannot presuppose the falsity of compatibilism in their reading of the passage to argue to the conclusion of the falsity of compatibilism. If we allow this, the compatibilist can just do the same in reverse. I could say, well, I, I think that I've given arguments demonstrating that libertarianism is false. Therefore, since libertarianism is an option and compatibilism affirms choice and this, this verse affirms choice, therefore this verse affirms compatibilism. That's just begging the question. That's not good. That's not good argumentation. We would just be we'd just be in a never-ending deadlock with both sides begging the question of their own positions. A far more fair analysis is simply that the biblical passages 
which present choice and decisions and moral responsibility, are simply metaphysically neutral with regard to the kind uh, of, of uh, the, the nature of the will in such a choice in these choice passages. What such choice passages would prove then is simply that some concept of substantive choice and responsibility must be true. That is, that deterministic incompatibilism must be false since it denies any substantive concept of choice and human moral responsibility. You have to remember, hard determinism is incompatibilistic, right? The hard determinist and the libertarian are both incompatibilists. Because the, the, the libertarian says that determinism is incompatible with freedom, and freedom is true, therefore determinism is false. The hard determinist says in determinism and freedom are incompatible, but determinism is true, therefore freedom must be false. They're both incompatibilists. But if the Bible affirms substantive choices— real moral responsibility for the things that we choose and desire to do, then therefore deterministic incompatibilism, that is hard determinism, must be false. Now, this doesn't mean that the Bible cannot adjudicate this issue for us. In fact, the burden of proof for each side, that of the libertarian incompatibilism and of compatibilism, are very lopsided because the compatibilist must only show a single example of God determining something while someone is also morally responsible for their choice in order to be vindicated. That's all the compatibilist has to do. All we need to show is that there is one instance where God determined something and someone chose to do something and was morally responsible for it. If that is the case, then determinism is compatibilist is compatible with human freedom and responsibility. In fact, even if no such verse is found, the position isn't falsified without a massive appeal to silence. However, on the other hand, the libertarian incompatibilists must defend a universal negative because they are saying that in principle, there can never be any such case. It can never occur. There can be no instance because in principle, every form of determinism is contradictory to any substantive or meaningful form of freedom. They have to make the principled argument. So they need a principled contradiction to exist in every concept of determinism and human choice or moral responsibility in order for, lim for libertarian freedom to be maintained. And if a single exception uh, can exist, then it falsifies their entire view. Right? So the compatibilist has a very, very small burden of proof, whereas the, the libertarian incompatibilist has a very large one. So do we see just such examples where God determines an action and the agent makes the choice and is morally responsible? In fact, yes, we do all over the place in the Bible. So let's see some examples. Number one, Genesis 45 verses 5 and 7 and 8 reads, quote, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you, you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. End quote. 
Notice here that Joseph, when referring to his brothers, says that they're the ones that sold him and sent him there, but that God is the one who actually sent him there. Well, we know his brothers and the slavers and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and all their choices and the choices of the Pharaoh and his servants that were in prison with him and, and all those, those choices sent him to the position that he was in, including his own choices. But Joseph says that God sent him there. So who sent him? God or all those other morally responsible agents? Yes. Notice that Joseph is so emphatic that while we know his brothers sold him and others sent him there, he says unequivocally that it was God who determined and sent him there. Next, Genesis 50, 20, quote, As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, end quote. This is a rephrase of the prior verses, but I wanted to bring it out because it's really important. The, the action, it, right? Because you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That is the selling him into slavery. Equally has the intention of his brothers and of God behind it. That is the singular action. You meant it, a definite action for evil. You intended it for for evil but god intended it for good right god had intentions on that action god god determined that action and intended it for a certain thing in the same way that his brothers intended it for an evil action they both equally intended that action and so we see something is determined and free we see Proverbs 21.1, quote, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, end quote. Does the king choose his plans and what he wills, or does God? Yes. Even if we limit this to some special act of providence over monarchs and not people generally, remember, we only need one example of determinism and freedom and responsibility concurring in the same act of falsified libertarianism. And so even if we confine this to some special providence over monarchs, we still show that determinism and freedom are equally true, that they concur together. Next, uh, we have James 4, 13 to 16, which reads, quote, Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. End quote. Tomorrow I will go to church or I will go to work. Or will God will it? Yes. And apparently it's actually boastful to claim otherwise. James is here telling me that I can only do, I can only choose to go to work tomorrow if the Lord wills it to come about. And that if I say otherwise, if I, if I claim that I am the one that has the prerogative to go, to, to, to choose to go to work, to choose to go to this town, to choose to go to this place, these mundane things, that if I claim otherwise, I am being boastful in making that claim. 
Why? Because I'm claiming a certain prerogative, a certain autonomy that is not given to me. I do not get to choose the course of God's creation. God gets to choose the course of God's creation. And so James is telling us, I I shouldn't say, I will go to work tomorrow. I should say, if the Lord wills, I will go to work tomorrow. That is determinism. I I can only do what, what the Lord wills to happen, but I can do it. That's compatibilism. Acts 2.23 reads, quote, This man, speaking of Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, end quote. Some will claim that it makes God the quote-unquote author of evil, which is going to be the next section, if he predetermines evil actions. But here we're told that the most evil action known to man, deicide, right, the murder of God, the murder of the Son of God, right, was predetermined by God and that godless men put him to death. Now, does the crucifixion, does, does, God, does the fact that God predetermined, remember the verse says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, does that make God the author of the greatest and gravest of all sins? He predetermined it, and they choose to do it and are responsible for their sin. If you make this, this is what's probably, you know, one of the reasons why I have such a problem when, when anti-Calvinists say things like, oh, well, your, your view makes God evil, right? Because if my view is true, which I think it is, and I can look at positions like this, what they're saying is in principle, if God has predetermined some evil thing to act, then God is the author of that evil thing and is evil himself. Right? They're saying, in principle, that is the case. And yet, if we, take this, if we take this Bible verse and hold it under their principle, that, that Jesus was delivered over, over by the predetermined plan of God to be crucified, that would make God the author of the greatest sin of all kind and under their principle would make him evil. Right? Their view, I get that they're rejecting Calvinism, and they're not trying to, to blaspheme God. But, but whenever you criticize another view like that, and you say, okay, well, your view, your view makes God a monster, or whatever it is, you're running the risk of saying, my principles are more true than what the Bible says. I'm going to come up with these principles, and I'm going to, I'm going to take those and impose those on the biblical passage. I have this humanistic, autonomous, moral impulse that God has to be the respecter of persons. And if he isn't, if God doesn't play by my rules, then he's evil. Right? That is a very dangerous way to handle a scriptural passage. The next passage, Acts 4, 27 to 28. For truly in this city they were, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. End quote. That is, the people and their rulers gathered together against Jesus, 
Why? To do the thing that the hand of God had predestined them to do. God had predestined it and they chose it and were responsible for it. The former does not in principle contradict the latter. Again, this is speaking of the most evil thing that has ever happened, the deicide of the Son of God. Right? The, the, the injustice of the only entirely innocent. If you say that God predestines evil things to happen, that that makes God evil, what you have just said is that this passage is telling us that God is evil because it tells us that he has predestined by his hand whatever they chose to do, right? He anointed Jesus and, and, and that both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, and, and what were they gathered there to do? Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. You can't get much more explicit than that. The next verse, Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, quote, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. End quote. Here, Isaiah is referring to the fall of Assyria. How great is the countless mass of human decisions that were needed for Assyria to fall? How many human decisions had to happen so that the empire of Assyria would fall? And yet Isaiah says that, that, that well, God is telling Isaiah here that it is exactly what he intended and planned to happen. Right? How could it be his intention and plan to what happened? It's what he has decided, it's what he has planned, it's what he's ordained, it's what he's intended to occur. And yet people freely chose for it to occur. It's compatibilism. The last verse that we'll look at, Jeremiah 10, 23 says, quote, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. End quote. Here, Jeremiah is actually praising God and saying the way he is is not like the false gods of the nations. He's actually in the middle of a doxological uh, statement, praising God for ways that Yahweh is not like the false gods of the nations. And one of those ways is that is what Jeremiah is, the, the Jeremiah is praising Yahweh for is that Yahweh is more glorious. The way that he's saying Yahweh is more glorious is that, is that even man does not direct his own steps. That Yahweh is the one who directs his steps, right? That, that, that no other deity, no other God does that. No other God is the one who directs the steps of man, directs the path, directs the direction, directs the outcome, directs the decisions. A man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. He's praising God for the way that Yahweh is different than the gods of the other nations because the gods of the other nations <laughs> are not the ones who direct the steps and, and, and the way of man. Yahweh is. 
the the compatibilism the the idea that god is the one predestining predetermining planning intending proorizoing the the steps of man the way of man is precisely something that jeremiah praises god for and yet it is something that the anti-calvinists bemoan and complain about now This was just a small handful of the vast number of verses that one could go to in order to demonstrate that there are cases which falsify the principled objection of the incompatibilist, that that determinism and freedom are always in principle contradictory. This means that while the choice passages may be uh, metaphysically neutral on which form of choice is possible, the broader biblical picture is not. Right? The, the individual choice passage might not give us the metaphysics behind what type of choice it's making. It's not saying, oh, well, this is, this is uh, you know, source freedom or this is agent freedom or anything. It's not giving us a metaphysical breakdown. It's just saying, here's a choice that happened. Right? Any view that has substantive choice in it can account, can account for those verses. It's just not a problem. Right? The, but, but the broader biblical picture the more balanced biblical picture, which has determinism passages in there, has passages where something is determined and someone is choosing and responsible, shows us that libertarian that libertarianism, libertarian incompatibilism, cannot be true because it makes a it attempts to make a principled contradiction between two things that the Bible has no problem putting together. Here, we could also think of a Protestant understanding of inspiration uh, that we talked about in the last episode, where God and the human author are both active in determining the exact same text, such that it's equally true to call the book of Romans the word of Paul and the word of God. Right? For more on that, you can read my article on it, or you can listen to the last episode on Calvinist musings. So we can see that, that not only can the libertarian incompatibilists argue from the scripture for their position exclusively without begging the question of the very conclusion that they're seeking to prove, but also that they cannot meet their burden of a universal negative principle of incompatibility, especially in the face of numerous verses, and I only went through some of them, there are way more, which show instances where determinism and freedom are not in contradiction with each other. So at the very least, we can say that the Reformed Christian or any that affirms some type of compatibilism is warranted in holding their position from the scriptures. Why? Because we can see passages that clearly present humans as making responsible choices, and at the same time, we can see passages that clearly present God determining some of those responsible choices. We can also overcome objections to the incompatibility of the two, such as the conflation of soft and hard determinism, that, that is, that any kind of determinism makes us robots or makes love impossible and, and so on. You, you, can, you can read uh, um, Guillaume Bignon's book, uh, excusing sinner, Blaming God, Excusing Sinners, or Excusing Sinners, Blaming God, I forget the order, yeah, which is a really, really good uh, book. So even if the compatibilist is not able to give a fully systematic reconciliation of the two truths in scriptures, 
right? So even, even if I can say, the most I can say is the Bible affirms freedom and the Bible affirms determinism, if that's the most I can say, and I, and I, and I'm, and if you ask me, well, how do they work together? And I can say, I have no clue how they work together. I think we have some good, some good answers for how they do. But imagine I said, I have no idea how they work together, right? If, if I, if I can just say that the Bible affirms both of those things and they're not contradictory, even if I don't know how to systematically reconcile those two, absent some kind of defeater for that view, we are warranted to accept them both as true. All right. The next uh, musing, the next thing I want to talk to much more briefly, is to answer the question, does Calvinism make God the author of sin? We already touched on this a little bit. So a common objection to Calvinism is that the anti-Calvinist believes that it would make God the quote-unquote author of sin, in which it's proposed that if God is the author of sin, then God is inappropriately related to the existence of sin such that he is somehow blameworthy for it. Now, there's numerous responses to this objection that I think easily dispatch the problem by correctly understanding the Reformed view of God's sovereignty and decrees in relationship to creation. I already mentioned it before, uh, but Guillaume Bignon's book, Excusing Sinner Blaming God, is a good example of how to do this. He, he hand over fist, refutes this type of objection. The, the line of response typified by Bignon is basically that the term, quote-unquote, author for sin— is left too vague and ill-defined to pose a meaningful objection to Calvinism and Reformed dogma. That is, quote-unquote, author of sin could mean several different things and could hide several assumptions about the relationship between God and creation and a certain view of libertarian freedom that are not present in Calvinism. Because the author of sin is a, is a variety of an internal critique, that is, quote, if Calvinism is true, then God would be the author of, of sin. It's an internal critique. Bringing in external assumptions or principles or views that are not intrinsic to Calvinism just means that the objection fails. It's no longer evaluating Calvinism qua Calvinism but rather is objecting to a misconstrued straw man of Calvinism slanted and distorted by extra-Calvinistic principles. This does not mean that Calvinism is true, but merely that this objection often fails for that reason. There are other reasons that could be given as well from views concerning the non-moral goodness of God, such that God just is the good and as such has no moral obligations to any moral standard like we as humans do. This would mean that whatever God did for his own reasons would be good for God to do precisely because God is the one doing it. This is somewhat complex and would take too long to explicate here, but I wanted to at least give a nod in that, that direction so many of my readers who would uh, make such an argument, myself included, I th actually think that is the case that God has a non-moral goodness, uh, that, that those who agree with me on that, you can rest assured that I'm, that I'm aware of, of that, the viability of that response. However, in addition to the above responses, I recently saw another rejoinder to the author of sin that I hadn't really seen before, and I found it really interesting. I, I, I have not thought about it long enough to, to think of all the ins and the outs, and I'd like to throw it open to everyone uh, here to weigh in on the merits of it. It goes like this. 
One of the assumptions of the author of sin objection is that if God is the author of sin, it means that he, uh, has, that, that he becomes the sole actor and only responsible party, that God being the author of sin removes the human component even if they freely chose to act upon their desire to act sinfully. That is, that God would be monergistically responsible for the existence of sin and man's choice is not considered sufficiently free enough to be blameworthy or causally determinative within itself. They argue that this just is what quote-unquote author means. This then, in conjunction with the first rejoinder above, sets the horns of a dilemma. Now, Hebrews 12.2 calls Jesus the author of our faith. If we take the meaning needed to make the anti-Calvinistic objection work, that author of just means a monergistic work where God becomes the only responsible party, eliminating the volitional role of the human, then we would also need Hebrews 12.2 to mean that. That would mean that in order to press the objection against the Calvinists, the anti-Calvinists would need to affirm the Calvinistic notion of monergism with respect to the existence of faith in the believer, that God in Christ is the one solely responsible for the existence of what he is the author of, and that man was determined and thus not praiseworthy for their own faith. They chose because God authored them to do it. So in order to avoid this, the anti-Calvinists will need to then equivocate on the term author and say that author can and does in some instances mean something other than the responsible agent for the existence of some feature of what they authored, if they authored it with the secondary cause of human action and choice. However, the instant that they do this, then they've shown that Bignon's rejoinder above properly dispatches their original objection, that it's simply not analogous to Calvinistic uh, determinism. This means that the author of sin objection either proves too much and inadvertently proves the Calvinistic doctrine of monergistic salvation or regeneration prior to faith, or else it does not prove enough to sustain its case because it requires a concept of authorship that the Calvinists wouldn't affirm and that they themselves do not even affirm in analogous cases. Therefore, the author of sin objection fails because the anti-Calvinist cannot have his book and eat it too. Well, that's about all I have for this episode of my Calvinist musings. I would love to hear some of your feedback. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out to me by emailing freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or come on by the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. Join us next time. Good night, and God bless.